Hey, Crypt Keepers, I want to tell you about our exciting new affiliation with Parabox. Parabox is a t-shirt subscription box with a twist. Each month, you will receive a new paranormal soft style tee and info card about that month's theme. The shirt and card will contain clues to finding a hidden password for use on their website. You'll also find clues to next month's theme. Correct entries get entered in a raffle for free gear. The shirts are unique. They're pretty dope with designs about all your favorite paranormal stuff like Black Eyed Kids, Bigfoot, Nazca Lines, and a really cool Battle of Los Angeles tee. That's one I'm hoping I will get here sometime soon. The designs are silk screened onto a soft style tee that's super comfortable. From the moment you open your pair box, you'll be so engrossed by the t-shirt, you'll forget there's a puzzle built into it. That's right, each shirt contains a secret password. It can be in the form of codes, ciphers, riddles, numbers, images, or other hidden gems. Have fun exploring the design and putting the pieces together to figure out where to go next. Get your exclusive link in the show notes, and we get a little kickback when you sign up for the box, so you can support the show while getting cool swag with mysteries in the process. Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to part two of season two, the finale. I'm joined, as always, by a man who saw the famed pigman of Angola, New York, and had a nice bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich for dinner. Ryan, what's up? (laughs) Not a whole lot. That sounds pretty good, though. It does. Maybe not made out of a pigman, but... uh... Just in general. Oh, just in general. Okay. Okay, so kind of like when I watched... um... Super size. That's yeah. what it was. Where he eats McDonald's every day and it's supposed to like horrify you. Yeah. And everybody that had to watch it with me, we were all like, man, I want this McDonald's so bad. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's awful. <laughs> all right. Well, tell them what they need to know. Please share this podcast on your favorite social media platform, on your least favorite social media platform. Send it to your friends, your enemies, your mom, your dad. Yes. Send it to everybody because that kind of thing helps us. Word of mouth is the best way for a podcast like this to spread and grow. If you want to reach out to us, tell us what you like or don't like. You can reach us at crypticpodcast at gmail.com and you can find out what Jay's been up to in his, uh, what would you call it? A Zoomer renaissance at TikTok at cryptique underscore podcast. And in its infancy is the Cryptique Podcast YouTube channel where we have a couple beats we've used on the podcast and a short on the green man. If you haven't listened to part one of the finale, you'll need to listen to that before you listen to part two here. So now we're going to kick off part two with claims of evidence. A body print taken in the year 2000 from the Gifford Pinchot National Forest in Washington State, dubbed the Skookum Cast, is also believed by some to have been made by a Bigfoot that sat down in the mud to eat fruit left out by researchers during the filming of an episode of the Animal X television show. Skeptics believe the cast to have been made by a known animal such as an elk. Anthropologist Jeffrey Meldrum, who we've discussed in part one, who specializes in the study of primate bipedalism, possesses over 300 footprint casts that he maintains could not be made by wood carvings or human feet based on their anatomy, 
but instead are evidence of a large non-human primate present today in America. In 2005, Matt Crowley obtained a copy of an alleged Bigfoot footprint cast called the Onion Mountain Cast and was able to painstakingly recreate the dermal ridges. Michael Dennett of the Skeptical Inquirer spoke to police investigator and primate fingerprint expert Jimmy Chilcutt in 2006 for comment on the replica, and he stated, quote, Matt has shown artifacts can be created, at least under laboratory conditions, and field researchers need to take precautions. However, in Season 4, Episode 5 of Monster Quests, one of my favorite shows of all time, he stated that a handprint he examined had a simian crease and could not have come from a human. He said it had dermal ridges or fingerprints, making it highly unlikely that it was fake. So, if you look at like a chimp or an orangutan or a gorilla's hand, and I assume their, their foot too, there is kind of a crease where, where they have almost like an extra joint to help you know, aid them in climbing trees and whatnot. But in any case, they can't even get the dates right. Chilcutt made the Dermal Ridges comments on Monster Quest's Grassman episode, which aired on June 18th, 2008. It's unlikely that the episode was filmed before this article came out. It's a great show, but I can't imagine that it was filmed in or before 2006, meaning that they didn't take two years to produce a a 40-minute episode. But again, if you read the article, you dismiss Sasquatch altogether, never knowing that the article appeared up to two years before Chilcutt appeared on Monster Quest. So... It's again, it's a very dismissive article, and if you don't know better, if if I hadn't seen that Monster Quest episode, I would have no idea that he actually said that after it was claimed, you know, by this uh, Matthew Crowley guy, that it could be faked. So, in any case... In 2015, Centralia College professor Michael Townsend claimed to have discovered prey bones with human-like bite impressions on the south side of Mount St. Helens. Townsend claimed the bites were over two times wider than a human bite and that he and two of his students also found 16-inch footprints in the area. Jeremiah Byron, host of the Bigfoot Society podcast, believes Bigfoot are omnivores, stating they eat both plants and meat. I've seen accounts that they eat everything from berries, leaves, nuts, and fruit to salmon, rabbit, elk, bear, and human. Just kidding about the human. Ronnie LeBlanc, host of Expedition Bigfoot on the Travel Channel, indicated he has heard anecdotal reports of Bigfoot hunting and consuming deer. Claims about the origins and characteristics of Bigfoot have also crossed over with other paranormal claims, including that Bigfoot, extraterrestrials, and UFOs are related, or that Bigfoot creatures are psychic, can cross into different dimensions, or are completely supernatural in origin. Additionally, claims regarding Bigfoot have been associated with conspiracy theories, including a government cover-up. Why would the government want to cover it up right right theories include the irreparable damage to america's timber industry so basically they found uh snowy owls which are extremely endangered and may have even been thought to be extinct in a forest where they were cutting timber and everything had to be shut down and 
they mm. just don't want that to happen again because if these creatures were proven to be real then that would really really screw the timber industry because it seems that they're found often in places where people are cutting down trees so that's gotcha. that's the snowy owl thing but go ahead they're a creation of or are being exploited by the military to create a super soldier sounds crazy right Stalin didn't think so, and he funded a study. Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin wanted to rebuild the Red Army in the mid-1920s with Planet of the Apes-style troops by crossing humans with apes. Stalin is said to have told Ivanov, I want a new invincible human being, insensitive to pain, resistant, and indifferent about the quality of food they eat. Swell guy, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so we will... Just, you know, leave that out there. There's a Monster Quest episode on that, or you can you can look it up if you're interested. Obviously, it didn't work, but it is interesting. There are several organizations dedicated to the research and investigation of Bigfoot sightings in the United States. The oldest and largest is the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, or BFRO. The BFRO also provides a free database to individuals and other organizations. Their website includes reports from across North America that have been investigated by researchers to determine credibility. Another includes the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, or NAWAC, or NAWAC, maybe? A nonprofit organization. Other similar organizations exist throughout many U.S. states, and their members come from a variety of backgrounds. Some organizations, as well as private researchers and enthusiasts, own and operate Bigfoot museums. In 2022, the Bigfoot Crossroads of America Museum and Research Center in Hastings, Nebraska was selected for addition into the archives of the U.S. Library of Congress. Conferences and festivals dedicated to Bigfoot are attended by thousands of people. These events commonly include guest speakers, research and lore presentations, and sometimes live music, vendors, food trucks, and other activities, which sounds pretty dope, I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Yeah, definitely sounds like fun. And, you know, you don't necessarily have to be a, a full-on believer to have fun at a festival. Yeah, totally, like totally. My, I have, my aunt and uncle used to live in Roswell. Oh, and yeah. you definitely don't have to believe that aliens crashed there to have fun with all the stuff that they have in town. I mean, clearly everybody in town has fun with it. Right. They have the little alien. Yeah. Which is a bad pun, but... Anyway, let's <laughs> let's talk about pop culture. Bigfoot has a demonstrable impact in pop culture and has been compared to Michael Jordan as a cultural icon. I don't know if I'd go that far. He doesn't have his own he doesn't have shoe, a shoe line yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Only in size 18 and up. <laughs> in 2018, Smithsonian Magazine declared, quote, interest in the existence of the creature is at an all-time high, end quote. According to a poll taken in May 2020, about 1 in 10 American adults believe that Bigfoot is a real animal. We're going to change that, right? In 2022, a Bigfoot named Legend was selected as the official mascot for the World Athletics Championships being held in Eugene, Oregon. October 20th, the anniversary of the Patterson-Gimlin film recording, is considered by some as National Sasquatch Awareness Day. Laws and ordinances exist regarding harming or killing a Bigfoot, specifically in the state of Washington. In 1969, in Skamania County, a law was passed 
making killing a Bigfoot punishable by a felony conviction resulting in a monetary fine up to $10,000 or five years in the pokey. In 1984, the law was amended to misdemeanor and the entire county was declared a Sasquatch refuge. Whatcom County followed suit in 1991 declaring the county a Sasquatch protection and refuge area. It would be interesting to see if there's any lumber companies in the area that are, you know, taking harvesting trees, as they say. In 2022, Grays Harbor County, Washington, passed a similar resolution after a local elementary school in Hockwam submitted a classroom project asking for a, quote, Sasquatch protection and refuge area to be granted. In 2021, State Representative Justin Humphrey, to bolster tourism, proposed an official Bigfoot hunting season in Oklahoma, indicating that the Wildlife Conservation Commission would regulate permits and the state would offer a $3 million bounty if such a creature was captured alive and unharmed. And if you believe in a Sasquatch and you believe the size stories and stuff, good luck. You know, I mean, they're extremely bright and huge and strong i don't know how you would capture one alive and unharmed i I guess we can refer to mountain monsters and just build a trap out of telephone poles and shock wire and throw a deer carcass in there but in any case it's kind of fun and they can sell bigfoot hunting permits they're not worried about the bounty i mean they could have made it up billion dollars you know what i mean because they don't actually believe that it's out there but right do you want to tell us about world champion taxidermist ken walker sure in 2015 world champion taxidermist ken walker completed what he believes to be a lifelike bigfoot model based on the subject in the patterson gimlin film he entered it into the 2015 world taxidermy and fish carving championships in springfield missouri (laughs) That was the subject of Dan Wayne's 2019 documentary, Big Fur. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, that was just a delightful uh, thing to have to read. (laughs) Big Fur. All the names of everything. Yeah, Big Fur. The World Taxidermy and Fish Carving Championships. (laughs) And then it's, it's in our home state, man. That's right. (sighs) Some have been critical of Bigfoot's rise to fame, arguing that the appearance of the creatures in cartoons, reality shows, and advertisements further reduces the potential validity of serious scientific research. Others propose that society's fascination with the concept of Bigfoot stems from human interest in mystery, the paranormal, and loneliness. In a 2022 article discussing recent Bigfoot sightings, journalist John Keelman of the Chicago Tribune states, quote, because this is a long one, As UFOs have gained newfound respect, becoming the subject of a Pentagon investigative panel, the alleged Bigfoot sightings is a reminder that other paranormal phenomena are still out there. Bigfoot has been used in official government environmental protection campaigns, albeit comedically, by entities such as the U.S. Forest Service in 2015. The act of searching for or researching the creature is often referred to as squatching, popularized by the Animal Planet reality series Finding Bigfoot. Bigfoot researchers and believers are often called squatchers. (laughs) 
During the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, Bigfoot became a part of many North American social distancing promotion campaigns, with the creature being referred to as the social distancing champion and as the subject of various internet memes related to the pandemic. We'll talk about Nephilim, infrasound, and glowing orbs after the break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. The Nephilim are mysterious beings or people in the Hebrew Bible who are large and strong. And a lot of people believe that Bigfoot or Sasquatch is a Nephilim. The word Nephilim is loosely translated as giants in some translations of the Hebrew Bible, but left untranslated in others. Some Jewish explanations interpret them as hybrid sons of fallen angels, and that would make them demigods. They would be basically half human and half presumably fallen angels. The main reference to them is in Genesis, but the passage is ambiguous and the identity of the Nephilim is disputed. A similar or identical biblical Hebrew term read as Nephilim by some scholars or as the word fallen by others appears in the book of Ezekiel. Tell us, are they giants? I want to make a they might be giants uh, pun, but it's not coming to me. No. Most of the contemporary English translations of Genesis and Numbers renders the Hebrew Nephilim as giants. This stems from the fact that one of the earliest translations of the Hebrew Bible renders the said word as gigantes. From there, the tradition of the giant progeny of the sons of God and the daughters of men spread to later medieval translations of the Bible. The Hebrew Nephilim means literally the fallen ones. Similarly dark was their moral designation and the sources witnessed to both awe and fascination with which these creatures must have been looked upon. Both were presented as impersonating chaotic qualities and posing some danger to gods and humans. They appeared either in the prehistoric or early historical context, but in both cases they preceded the ordering of the cosmos. Lastly, both Gigantes and Nephilim were clearly connected with the underworld and were said to have originated from Earth, and they both end up closed therein. Alright, so fallen angels. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. And when the angels, the sons of heaven, beheld them, they became enamored of them, saying to each other, Come, let us select for ourselves wives from the progeny of men, and let us beget children. Sons of God, male gender, divine nature, with the daughters of men, female gender, and human nature. From this parallelism, it could be inferred that the sons of God are understood as superhuman beings. And I know this is a little bit garbled, but I had to kind of leave it as it was. Infrasound describes sound waves with a frequency below the lower limit of human audibility, generally about 20 hertz. Hearing becomes gradually less sensitive as frequency decreases, so for humans to perceive infrasound, the sound pressure must be sufficiently high. The ear is the primary organ for sensing low sound, but at higher intensities it is possible to feel infrasound vibrations in various parts of the body. The study of such sound waves is sometimes referred to as infrasonics, covering sounds beneath 20 Hz down to 0.1 Hz. People use this frequency range for monitoring earthquakes and volcanoes and charting rock and petroleum formations below the Earth. Infrasound is characterized by an ability to get around obstacles with little dissipation. 
While infrasound is inaudible to the human ear, it can affect your body and organs. It's often used as a crowd dispersal tool, and it can create feelings of dread and can even make people incontinent. Meaning you're gonna you gonna shake yourself. <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. <laughs> running away. You see a bunch of people like a crowd of protesters running away holding their butts. <laughs> <laughs> One of the greatest things I've ever seen on uh, Expedition Unknown, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Josh Gates, he was on a boat like somewhere i think in india or something and he was saying like it was just like little aside they had this little thing where he's standing there in front of the camera and he's like so riding on this boat he's like they caught fish they prepared the fish they washed the fish in water from the river and you know what happens shit your pants (laughs) (laughs) i've done it i just did it (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) other large mammals like tigers elephants and whales use infrasound as well as gators it's known that they communicate with infrasound and believed that it is used to stun prey. I'm sorry, I just have an image of a gator chasing like a low rider, just blasting base. <laughs> have you ever seen how they use the infrasound? Uh-uh. They don't they don't use their lungs. They vibrate all the muscles in their back and tail and you can see it, but you can't hear it, but you can see it like shaking the water and everything and they use it to I guess communicate like, hey, there's a male out here that's, you know, interested if you want to swipe right or swipe left. I don't mm-hmm. even know which way it goes. But I also watched a special on Blue Whales uh, Friday, and their infrasound, they can communicate over 3,000 miles underwater. So they even use coral beds as sort of a a satellite dish you can see them going down to the coral bed and they're facing downward they're they're vertical facing downward and then they you know sing their songs it bounces off the coral and <laughs> goes to where they want it to go but 3000 miles underwater wow crazy yeah it's known that they communicate with infrasound and believe that it is also used to stun prey if you're interested in learning more about infrasound and its applications, check out our sound bombing episode, <laughs> season two, episode 22. So you want to talk about glowing orbs? I do. In many Sasquatch encounters, witnesses report glowing orbs, usually red or orange and about the size of a basketball. Are they related? There's not a lot of reports of just the orbs being seen without the big guy being a part of the report. In one report, a man is seen... Okay, so this is pretty crazy. A man is seen walking through the... Now, these are Sasquatch hunt... I don't even think they were Sasquatch hunting. I think they were just paranormal investigating. But basically, they have an IR cam, and it's recording one of their members walking along, you know, through thick brush on a ridge. And he disappears, and then they see an orange ball of light, And then four seconds later, he reappears and has moved about 50 yards through the brush. And he doesn't remember any of it, but they actually see him disappear and then appear about four seconds later, further away than he could have possibly gotten, even if he was running through this thick brush. So that's kind of a a cool aside. But anyway, you want to tell us about migration? 
Some researchers believe that Sasquatch migrate. If you do a little forensic geography on the reports, you'll see the reports tend to be linked to certain places at certain times. An example would be, and this is just for the sake of argument, that the reports of Sasquatch in northern Arkansas occur in the winter, southern Missouri in the spring, and mid-Missouri in the summer. Then southern Missouri in the fall, back to Arkansas in the winter. Kind of sounds like a migration pattern to me. Yeah, and I think a lot of people just assume there's no way that they could possibly travel without being noticed, but... I mean, they're not loading up in a station wagon with their skis on top to go to Arkansas. Right. There's no, like, coyote, coyotes coming up from the uh, border saying, hey, we'll transport you. <laughs> so anyway, those are some kind of cool things that we just wanted to, I guess, do some housekeeping and, you know, make sure that we got that out there. So do you have any final thoughts on any of those topics? I don't know. Bigfoot's just one of those topics that there's just like always more to it. It's one of these things where I, I it's hard to imagine that there's nothing to it if so many people are interested in it. If there's yeah. constantly shows about it, you know, we're doing episodes about it. There are articles, there are sightings. There's so much stuff happening around it, and it just kind of never goes away. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure a great deal of the sightings are some kind of misidentification or pranks or whatever. Sure. But man, there wouldn't be so many people reporting these sightings and finding these footprints if it was all fake. Yeah. And it wouldn't be this enduring. You know, there are definitely bizarre things that happen, but it kind of goes away when it's pranks. Like, remember a couple of years ago, there were those like clown sightings all over. Mm-hmm. And it was just a trend of people dressing up like clowns. It wasn't the start of like a clown revolution <laughs> or, or whatever, you know, clowns Pennywise wasn't really here. Yeah, it was, you know, it was a a prank that kind of came and went. Yeah. But Bigfoot, Bigfoot is forever. <laughs> That's true. And I'm in the camp of that this is a North American wood ape that we're seeing. I don't personally believe that it's an alien some people have said oh it's an alien's pet like their dog they just let some loose and you know they bred and have turned into a population but i i kind of just always fall back to you know what's more likely and and i know this is a kind of an odd topic to bring up what's more likely true but is it more likely that they're aliens coming here on ships and they have you know glowing orbs that follow them around that are some sort of ai or something like that that they can cloak and basically turn invisible and things like that or that there's an undiscovered ape in north america And as far, like, we didn't really talk about cloaking, but there's a video where basically you see what looks like the alien from the movie Predator when he cloaks, and you can still kind of see him, but it's really, you know, you're seeing the background with some morphine or something like that. So that's out there, but the reports that I've seen where they talk about, like, an incredible camouflage that they're a lot of times their coats are just so dark and so black that they almost just absorb light they don't reflect anything 
And that's where I think some of the cloaking stories come in. But, you know, who who knows about the Nephilim? I, I think that's I, I think that since there hasn't been one that's been, you know, captured or killed or, or whatever, at least that we know about, that people are going to come up with every single possibility they can possibly think of. And I think that's where a lot of this falls in. But Yeah, I think my favorite theory on their origin is that they are not from Earth. Mm-hmm. That they were... Because there are a couple sort of alien explanations. There's Well, and interdimensional as well. We've talked about that. Mm-hmm. But I've read theories that they are almost like drones or scouts. Mm-hmm. Like dropped off by greys or something else to kind of check things out. or Maybe they're super soldiers. Yeah, or perform some function. Mm-hmm. But the one that I like the best is the idea that they're like extremely long-lived and very advanced and intelligent and they're just like hippies living in the woods. Yeah. And they just want to, you know, exist and, you know, do their thing and not really bother people. And there are, there are stories of encounters like this. I mean, there are all kinds of stories. None of this means that this is true. This is just my favorite. (laughs) Right. That they, when they encounter them, they're like gurus and they'll Uh like teach you about the things that are important in life. And, and, you know, and that, you know, materialism isn't everything. Conquering isn't everything. That's why they're hiding out on Earth in the woods of Missouri. <laughs> yeah. And and that this is a lifestyle that can be maintained basically forever. I mean, you know, we often we look at tribes, people, you know, in Africa and the Amazon and Sentinel Island and other places. And we call them savages or whatever you know not advanced and so on but in reality their lifestyle can last forever ours can't eventually no matter how many electric cars we have and how many cows we we don't allow to survive because they're destroying the environment and no matter how we live if we live even similar to how we're living now eventually time will run out for us and it we won't be able to sustain this forever on planet earth but they can and the tribes people in the amazon can and some of these homesteaders you know even just you know people that come from what we would call a civilized society but then choose to have a cabin in the woods, you know, with a little vegetable garden and hunt for their food, that can be sustained, but we can't. So there's a a lesson to be learned here. Even if you don't believe, just the ability of them to be able to sustain this forever is a real possibility until we destroy everything and we end up, you know, harvesting energon on other planets for our for Cybertron. You know, <laughs> I, I, thought that's, I thought that's the reference you were making. It's like yeah. Energon. <laughs> yeah, so that's a Transformers reference, but <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. I, I think that there's a lot to be learned whether you believe it or not. Let's take a quick break and then we'll cover some of the reported encounters.
Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Let's talk about true Bigfoot stories and encounters. In a report made to the BFRO, my neighbor is a seasonal wildlife biological technician for Redwood National Park. He has been working several seasons doing spotted owl surveys and is very familiar with local wildlife. One evening, just before sunset, he and his partner were walking with a cage of six mice that had sat in the same cage without being cleaned for three or four days and it smelled to high hell. They were several miles south of Bald Hills Road at about 2,000 feet up an approximately 3,000 foot mountain in extremely rugged and isolated terrain several miles from the nearest logging road. After bushwhacking for about 30 minutes heading downhill, they stopped in their tracks when they heard a large branch snap. There are a lot of bears and mountain lions in the area, and they are familiar with stalking cats. The creature was quick and agile like a cat, but sounded heavier than a bear. It also sounded like it was walking on two legs. They would hear it behind them, and a little later, it would be way ahead of them, sometimes on the other side of them. They figured it was crossing right behind them and then passing them up on the other side. By this time, it was getting dark in the forest, late twilight, when my friend started looking over his shoulder quite frequently. It was at this time that he saw a large, dark animal dash across the trail on two legs. He has seen the Patterson-Gimlin film and is familiar with Sasquatch, and he says that it moved with the same motion, just much quicker. He also noted it seemed a little thinner than Patty, which is a little judgmental to me. The next story. I was bow hunting and had parked myself between two deer trails, each running alongside a clear cut. I was dead center, with 25 yards between me and each trail. I faced west into the wind at about dusk. There was usually a lot of deer in the area, but on that evening, it seemed very quiet. Just as it became too dark to see my aiming sights, I heard crunching footsteps coming from directly behind me. At the time, I thought it might be a buck and rut. The animals seemed to be following my scent directly to where I was hidden in some blackberry bushes. A cover scent had been applied to my clothes and boots using pine needles that were blended with water. My clothes were soaked in the solution and dried, very effective, for deer anyway. This animal walked right up to the clearing behind me. I had plenty of time to turn around to situate myself for a clear shot. I raised my bow and it came into view 25 yards away and stopped. It seemed to know exactly where I was sitting. We were staring at each other from about 75 feet for about a full minute. The Bigfoot slowly swayed back and forth a few inches from side to side. I estimated it to be about seven and a half feet tall and maybe 600 pounds. I never pulled back on the bow and the Bigfoot eventually just turned around and walked in the same direction it came from. Because of the thick leaves on the ground, no tracks were found the next day when I returned to look around. This animal was black in color and its shoulders were approximately four foot wide. Since this incident happened, I've brought up the subject with many people in this area and I'm surprised at how many have had or know someone who has had experiences in this county. My father and I were working for a drywall place in Boynton Beach, Florida. We had just finished a job and came into the office for a new assignment. The manager told us he had a special job and would consider it a favor if we did it. The developer of Boca Teca had a couple of hunting cottages in the Everglades and it wouldn't take us more than a couple of days. We would have to camp over since it was too far to drive and there wasn't any lodging around. 
Now, my wife was seven months pregnant, and I wasn't crazy about doing the job. However, the boss was persuasive and said, if you want to continue working for me, you'll do it. I didn't have health insurance and was making payments to Bethesda Hospital in advance for my wife's upcoming hospital stay, so I caved in and took the job. The next day, we packed some camping gear in the station wagon. My idea of camping was a state park or a KOA campground, but we set off. The directions were simple. Take the Florida Turnpike south and go west on Alligator Alley. About halfway across, you will see a gravel road to the left. Pass it and take the next gravel road to the left. The work site would be halfway between Alligator Alley and the Tamiami Trail. This would have put it in Collier County, Florida, which is the beginning of Everglades country. We traveled miles and miles under the hot sun on Alligator Alley. Coming to the second gravel road, we turned left and traveled more, miles and miles down a washboard gravel road. I had packed fishing gear, a 22 caliber Magnum pistol, and two 30 caliber M1 carbines. A canal ran parallel to the road and I had at least wanted to go get my hook wet. I talked him into stopping for 15 minutes or so to stretch our legs and I dropped a line in the canal. It was full of alligator gar which were stacked up like cordwood. We started up again and after many more miles saw the site. We arrived in the early afternoon. The two cottages turned out to be two houses, each identical and two stories high. The developers had a drive made by a dumping pad of coarse gravel about two and a half to three foot high, about 300 yards back into the swamp. At the end and right of each drive was a big square of gravel the houses were built on. This was going to be more than a two-day job. We started taping the houses. While I was working, I could hear something rummaging around out in the bush. I couldn't see anything, but there was a strong odor like the pig farm next to my grandpa's farm. We worked till dark and cleaned and packed up our tools. I had Dad start a campfire on the part of the drive that went past the house. I set up the cots and put on my holster and 22 caliber Magnum revolver, just in case we encountered a charging boar. Good luck with a 22. Dad brought a slab of bacon. He was doing the cooking. It smelled good too. The whole time I kept hearing the rummaging around in the Everglades. The sound seemed to be getting nearer. It occurred to me, if it were a wild boar or anything as large as the sounds indicated, the 22 mag probably wouldn't be too effective. I decided to go get one of the carbines. As I stood up and started to go to the wagon, I turned and saw two eyes staring from about 20 feet away. First thought, an owl. But then I realized what I was looking at. I froze in my tracks. Next thought, a bear. Only I was staring level in its eyes. I was on a gravel pad about three foot higher than it was. I'm five foot six inches. My god. It was eight to nine foot tall. My hand went for my gun. I drew it and was going to fire. Only I realized if I shot this thing, all I was going to do was really make it angry. Also, it wasn't acting threatening. It was just watching. It had a face more human than a bear or an ape. Closer to an Australian aboriginal. I could also see its skin. It didn't have thick fur. It had sparse, long, and wispy-like strands. The hair was more like an orangutan. Only these were things I put together later. At the time, I was just plain scared. As a Vietnam vet with a purple heart, I wasn't over-scared either. 
Let's just say I had a strong sense of self-preservation. I made a beeline for the house and momentarily thought about stopping to get the carbine from the wagon. However, my feet took me into the house and up the stairwell. My dad was hot on my heels. I went to the window which faced the campfire. As I looked out the window, I asked dad, who was across the room, did you see that? He said no. I told him, then what the heck were you running for? He said, I saw you draw your gun, then didn't shoot and then run off. I figured you had a good reason. I told him we needed the carbines. You go out and get them and I will cover you. He wouldn't do it. Still looking out the window, I noticed we left a slab of bacon on a log near the campfire. Then I saw it come out of the brush. I told Dad, there it is, come over here and look at it. He wouldn't do it. I don't know if he could have gotten across the room in time anyway. It crossed the viewable area maybe 100 feet in a few strides. As it walked, it scooped up the slab of bacon. It didn't really bend over, it just dropped a shoulder slightly. It was walking upright the whole time. I might add, it was walking, not running. It was casually strolling as if it didn't have a care in the world. It dawned on me that it didn't mean any harm. It just wanted the bacon. Anyway, I went to the wagon and got the carbines. Even though I wasn't sure what I saw and I concluded it didn't mean any harm, I wasn't taking any chances. I told Dad we were going to take two-hour watches. He decided to sleep first. I woke him up in two hours and told him to awaken me in two hours. I woke up in the morning and he was fast asleep. Whatever it was could have had us, if it had wanted to. The doors to the cabin had not been installed yet. I went out and looked for tracks. Nothing on the gravel. I didn't expect any. I climbed down to the ground. I thought it would be soft, but it was dry and there was a thick pad of pine needles. There were a few scuffed places, but the distance between them looked too far apart to be footsteps. I thought about venturing out and looking for a soft spot, but at the time, I wasn't trying to prove anything but to myself. If my dad wasn't such a chicken and had seen it, then I would have been more resolved to look further. Creefcore Bottoms is in St. Louis County, Missouri, and this happened a long time ago, uh, early 80s. While bow hunting in Creefcore Bottoms, I had been in my stand all day and had no luck. So I got down right before dusk and proceeded to stalk alongside a trail leading to the river. I had come to a point where the trail turns and runs parallel to the river. When I started around the turn, something moved in the corner of my eye off to the right. My first thought was that I was going to scare up a deer. So I drew my bow and tried to take aim on the area of the movement, but what I saw was not a deer. At first I thought it was a man in camouflage laying on the ground. That freaked me out, so I let off my bow. However, I was trying to make out this quote person lying on the ground on their belly when it raised up on its right arm, turned the upper half of its body, and looked at me. This was no person. It was too dark to see any features, but I could see two legs stretched out behind it, two arms in front, a large torso, and a head. It seemed to be covered in grayish-brown fur from head to toe. No visible gear, which struck me as odd, so I continued to try and figure out what this was. I stared at it, and it at me, when I felt the need to leave. I did not feel threatened, just that I had to go. 
As I began to leave and head back toward the levee, I kept thinking about turning back because I could not believe what had happened, but something made me go out of the woods. I've grown up in the woods all my life. I've hunted in South Central and Eastern Missouri and grew up only a few miles from here, but never before have I seen something I could not explain. If this thing had stood up, it would easily have been a foot or more taller than me. We began finding trees that had been bent over and large rocks on the tops. They had smaller trees laying up against them. We attributed this to the floodwaters playing some sort of weird trick. But after viewing the suspected nest on the web, these are virtually identical. We'll tell you the story of Momo the monster after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Momo the Monster, also known as the Missouri Monster, is a purported ape-like creature similar to descriptions of Bigfoot that was allegedly sighted by numerous people in rural Louisiana, Missouri in 1971 and 1972. Witnesses described the creature as a large bipedal humanoid with a pumpkin-sized head about seven feet tall, covered in dark hair that emits a putrid odor. The most well-known sighting occurred on July 11, 1972, when two young boys were playing in the backyard on the rural outskirts of Louisiana, Missouri. Their older sister, Doris, was in the kitchen when she heard her brother screaming. When she looked out of the window, she observed a massive, dark-haired, man-like creature holding what appeared to be a deceased dog. She described it as having a pumpkin-shaped head and large, glowing orange eyes. Many alleged sightings occurred that year. Most notably was local fire department chief and member of the city council, Richard Allen Murray. Richard Allen Murray told Motherboard that he was driving near Louisiana's town branch, a small creek that runs through the middle of the town, at around 11 p.m. As he was passing a small hill, he noticed something moving. Turning his truck towards the hill, his headlights illuminated a strange, upright figure covered in brown hair. Murray guessed the creature was about 20 feet away, and when it realized he was there, it quickly hurried over the hill and disappeared. Murray, a lifelong local who has served as the town's fire chief and sat on the city council, was surprised by his sighting. Murray said, I was amazed to see something. I thought it was a bunch of nonsense, but then I saw something. As a result of these reported encounters, a 20-person posse was formed to hunt the creature, but nothing was ever found. In one account, two children were playing on what was described as a swing set by the Mississippi River but was probably a rope swing. The creature startled them, stared for a few seconds, and marched on about its business. It was a typical winter afternoon in Humboldt County. It was raining intermittently and the river was on the rise and becoming too turbid to fish. Okay, turbid means cloudy, opaque, or thick with suspended matter. So I guess that makes sense. I parked about 30 yards away from the river's edge on a dirt road surrounded by dense willows. I turned off the car and opened the door. Immediately I heard two bellows that seemed far off. I initially thought it was local kids. The best I could do to describe the noise is to ask you to try and make it. Put your lips together as if to make a sound of a bee, then bellow whoop. <laughs> I'm not going to make the noise. Wait two seconds and then do it again. This is what I heard. Boop, boop, boop. 
I used to work as a horse patrol park ranger on the eastern slope of the Rockies in Rocky Mountain National Park. I kept visitors away from the elk. In addition, I have frequently heard elk bugle near Oric, California. I know the bugle of an elk, and that's not what this was. Well, I didn't think much of it, so I got my waders on and proceeded to the river's edge. I waded in up to my thigh and began fishing, moving slowly downstream. The river was about 50 yards wide and nearly at bank full. About 10 minutes went by and I noticed a dark figure downstream and across the river, seemingly standing behind a large root wad. I could see what I thought was a head and shoulders of a bear or something. It was drizzling and I couldn't focus on it at first. I wasn't sure if it was an animal. I thought it might just be a part of the root wad. As I fished downstream, I worked my way directly across from it and looked at it again. I looked right into its eyes. They were dark. It didn't move. I then saw another to its left. I could see its body from the thigh up. It didn't move. It was looking slightly downstream. These things looked taller than a man, had flat faces and large round eyes. Their shoulders were broad and their arms were long. They were mostly covered in hair, although the one on the left seemed to have bald spots on its chest area like mange. I kept fishing and tried to work downstream of them to tail out, where I could cross and sneak up on them to get a closer look. The river was too high. As I worked back upstream, I noticed a cocoon-shaped object perched on the root wad overhanging the river's edge. It was shaped like a football, but was probably four feet long and two and a half feet in diameter. Hard to tell at 50 yards. This cocoon-like thing appeared to be neatly wrapped in dry grasses like cattail or pampas grass blades. I kept fishing, moving upstream of them back toward my car, and at one point I looked back to get another look, and the cocoon-like thing and the animals were gone. A day later, I drove to the other side of the river to go see if I could track them, but the river had flooded the entire area. Damn river. Of course. Damn river. All right, you got another one for us? Mm-hmm. All right. Near the end of August 2008, a couple of friends and I went camping slash Bigfoot hunting around Upper Kalawash River in the Oregon Cascade Range east of Estacada with the intentions of finding a spot I had been told about by a guide on a whitewater rafting trip I had taken with my brother in 2006. Unfortunately, when we got to our destination, I was the only one in our group that wanted to look for Bigfoot. Disappointed but not dissuaded, I tried to keep the rest of the group at least somewhat interested in the Bigfoot search to little avail. The first night, we camped quite away into the bush and away from the overcrowded campgrounds where everyone felt more comfortable. We followed an old logging road until it ended at a very secluded spot atop a ridge and maybe 250 to 350 yards directly south of the clear-cut power line running east to west. The first night was interesting as we continued to hear distinct wood knocking. They started at around 11 p.m. Most were far off and very fast, four to seven quick, sharp cracks directly east of us that would echo across the valley only to be answered from another direction farther south and then north, but at first they were pretty far off. So it sounds like Woodnock's kind of starting in one spot and getting answers from a couple different places. If you hear any of this alleged Woodnocking, the repetitions are very quick. So it's not like we would do where we'd be like, bang, wind up, bang, wind up. It's like, bang, 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 bang. Just super quick, quicker than we could, you know, kind of reset. I I think of, you know, a baseball player. Yeah, right. It's like the force with which you need to hit something to make a knock like these 
would require us, like you're saying, to wind up like a baseball player. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They seem to be able to do it with the same sort of force that I would use to just tap my pen on the table. Right. And that they may have, uh, you know, branches or sticks or whatever in each hand as well. Yeah. Everyone thought they were gunshots, but this was a really dark night, and these sounds were coming from pretty deep in the thick forest, accessed only by not well-traveled logging roads and from at least three different sources that for the life of me sounded like they were communicating, so I ruled out gunshots. These sounds continued to get closer to our campsite as the night wore on. At one point, maybe 12.30 or 1 a.m., the group wanted to drive over to the power lines, where the trees weren't so thick and you could see for several miles. So... You know, I'm sure everybody gets it, but you're imagining that clearing that they have to make around power lines so that people can get there. Because I, I know around this area there are trails where, you know, you can walk through these smaller trails, but then they'll eventually connect with areas where they have these huge clearings, and it's almost better to walk there sometimes. Well, and people have described these as like Sasquatch superhighways. There's a lot yeah. of hidings, you know, just off of these clearings like i mean they go for miles and miles they go wherever the power lines go so yeah back when i had a an old ford ranger i used to kind of go off-roading with it every once in a while and those things it was a godsend when you'd run across those power line clearings Mm -hmm. if you're trying to get somewhere yeah it's like oh my god okay i can follow this for a while instead of you know trying to pick at one mile an hour through this other trail right Almost immediately after everyone left, I started hearing sticks breaking from the direction they had driven out on, and everything got really quiet. Now I'm from Montana and have spent many a night camped alone in far more rugged mountains than I was in now and have experienced most of the wildlife, at least partially up close and personal, that our American forests have to offer, but I gotta tell you, I got a little spooked while they were gone. I did what any self-respecting outdoorsman would do and put a lot more wood on the fire. (laughs) I didn't hear anything at that time. That sounded too bizarre, but I was glad when everyone got back. My buddy asked me if I was knocking rocks together while they were gone. I told him I hadn't and asked what they heard. He said they were out looking at the valley from the top of the road we came in on, about 250 to 350 yards away, and they all heard distant knocking coming from the direction of our camp. He said it sounded like rock on rock. Later, after everyone had gone to their tents, I again decided to stay up. At around 3.30 a.m., I heard a very low grumble with a huff, followed by what sounded like a lot of breath being pushed out and very close to the fire, maybe 30 feet. At first, I thought it was a bird or something, then almost immediately another answered the first from across the clearing we were camped in directly behind me. I put my flashlight on where I heard the sound coming from, and it would stop. Ten minutes later, it would start up again. I don't know why I didn't get anyone up to listen with me, but I didn't. This went on for about an hour, until the sun started to brighten the sky and you could see a lot better. I never heard walking or any more sticks breaking, but those grunting noises were close and there was at least two of whatever was making them. It wasn't until on our way home that my buddy told me that he'd heard the grunts too, and I love this, he was too scared to get up and investigate. The next day we went looking for another campground. I didn't want to leave, but I was the minority on the subject. As we were driving down, my buddy and I in his rig and his friends behind us in theirs, something very big ran across the road about 150 yards in front of us. It was dark brown or black and uniform in color and at least 8 feet to 9 feet tall and moving like a freight train. It was huge. We only saw it for maybe a second before it tore into the trees running from the right to the left. My skeptical buddy looked at me and said, did you see that? 
I had my video camera in my lap, but there was no way I could have gotten a shot of this thing. It was really moving. We stopped where we thought it crossed in the road, and you could see quite clearly where something had come down the incline on the right side of the road, but we didn't smell anything. We got out and I climbed the small incline that it had come down to investigate, and after 30 minutes or so, I found a somewhat human track, 18 inches long and seven and a half inches wide, and got video of it. We did have material to cast the print, but since it was in the mossy ground that covers most of the Oregon forest, my buddy refused to cast the print, claiming that we wouldn't get anything from it. I was furious, but it was his stuff, and I learned the hard way to pack your own gear. Right. So I like that in this story, they actually thought about the smell. Yeah. I like that he included that because the smell is something like when you, when you jokingly earlier mentioned, uh, you know, coyotes moving, smuggling Bigfoots between their like summer and winter spots. Yeah. I was thinking about, you know, when you're behind a trailer carrying livestock. Oh yeah. Like you can smell it and Bigfoot's supposed to smell horrific. Right it's kind of hit or miss some people say that you know they're a hundred percent convinced that they saw a sasquatch and it didn't stink some of them say that the smell i mean the way they describe it i don't even know how they could know what this smells like but they'll be like picture a dead dog rolling around in dead bodies and covered in feces and put out on a highway to burn in the sun and it's like have you ever smelled that I mean, I understand that they're trying to make it understood that the smell is just absolutely disgusting. But I don't know. I mean, it would make sense that they may do something to purposefully be smelly, to keep things away from them, or maybe to cover up their own scent if they're hunting. They use all kinds of... uh, scent disguising things you know fox urine coyote urine different stuff like that sometimes people will take like pine needles and water and soak their clothes in that and you know it's possible that maybe some of these prey animals are familiar with the smell of what a normal sasquatch would smell like and know to get the hell out of there but if they just smell nasty stink they won't necessarily associate that as a threat yeah that makes a lot of sense or even just like a skunk like you were saying earlier just to keep other creatures off their trail right but yeah and and that that's something that bothers me this is like totally not really related but when people say something like that and they're like oh it smelled like this right Mm. you're like how do you how do you know what that's like right exactly it it makes me think of like like ghosts yeah, Ghost Adventures and some of these shows where they're like, oh, my my arm is burning and look, I have scratches. It feels like something's inside my arm trying to tear its way out. And it's like, do you, you don't know what anything feels like, do you? Right. Like, you don't know what it's like to be stabbed or even cut deeply, probably. Like, you don't... Mm-hmm. That, that kind of exaggeration always bothers me <laughs> a lot. Like, one of the worst smells I've ever smelled was just this particular hospital room that mm-hmm. I walked by one time and it's like, so to my mind, that's what Bigfoot smells like. You know, no no dead bodies burning on the side of a road required. Yeah, yeah. And, and the grossest thing I've ever smelled is dog poop from a dog that has parvo. What's parvo? It's um, a virus that they get, and it's fairly common in puppies. 
I don't know exactly how they get it. I know they can get it from other infected animals, but basically it causes the linings of their intestines to kind of slough away and they're basically pooping out dead <laughs> dead matter from inside their own body yeah. and it's unbearable oh. so yeah so it's like the normal smell of rot and in feces yeah. yeah if you have smelled a dead animal that's been rolled in feces and put in a Oh, like a like a compost. Yeah, yeah, and and rolled in this, and then burned in the hot sun on the road, and then sprayed by a skunk. It's like you've never really smelled that, right? I mean, if you have, then you're probably into some really weird shit, because I I just can't imagine a scenario where I've smelled a dead animal that's been rolled in feces and burned on the road. But in any case, roadkill's pretty bad, and. I I guess, you know, I would have to say that if they all smelled like that, that bad, or or even just some, you would suspect that it would draw vultures because they would, they would smell that, right? I mean, they can smell for miles. Yeah. And also just be a lot more likely that they'd be found. Yeah. A smell like that's hard to ignore. Like my, my mother. Oh God, where are we going with this one? She can't, she, she can't Uh smell anything. But she would be able to smell that. It's more just like that's this kind of smell is one that everybody will detect. Mm-hmm. You know, there are certain smells that it seems like only people who are not from more like developed areas notice. Mm-hmm. But you'll notice, like, I will notice a skunk from a mile away. It's just, it's like the worst smell to put out because everybody's going to pick up on it. Right. So if there's a population of these things around, yeah, it it makes a lot of sense to me. What I'm trying to get at is it makes a lot of sense to me that they are choosing to put this scent out. Mm-hmm. They're choosing to do it to stop some, you know, something that's pursuing them or, you know, to disguise another scent. Maybe there is some natural predator out there for them. Maybe, maybe it's us. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you would think that even with kind of the protection of the pack or whatever you would call a group of Sasquatch, that at least their young would have, I don't know about bears. I, I don't think that black bears generally run down prey. I know grizzly bears do, but you would think that at least like a big mountain lion would be a pretty significant threat to a young, you know, juvenile Sasquatch and especially a baby, that that would be something that they would go after and some animals like killer whales they they just don't mess with humans but i think that obviously they're very smart and i think i'm not saying that mountain lions or cats are stupid it's just i don't think that they would be able to have that higher level of thinking of oh yeah that looks like prey but if I go after it, I'm going to get hunted and killed. Because that, if that was the case, then mountain lions wouldn't attack humans because they they would know, hey, if I attack a human, there's going to be, you know, 150 people out here with rifles looking for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I would imagine that they they do have some some predators, but not many. And and of course, a, a grizzly bear. I, I mean, 
what could a grizzly bear not kill? A group of Sasquatch? <laughs> I mean, you would think, you know, a seven foot tall, 600 pound Sasquatch would be a fair fight with a grizzly bear. You know what I mean? It's not like they're just completely overwhelmed by the power of this thing. A grizzly bear, I would think, would be a, a natural predator. Do you have any final thoughts, like on this this entire finale? I really hope that there's some amalgamation of all of the Bigfoot theories I like. I hope this is what's true. I hope Bigfoot is... Because <clears throat> I do believe something's out there. Mm-hmm. I just don't know what Bigfoot is exactly. Mm-hmm. What I hope he is, is an interdimensional alien hippie who lives for thousands of years who's decided to retire to the woods of Missouri or Arkansas during the winter and is slightly autistic All right, <laughs> as our interview, remember? Bigfoot yeah, and autism. Yeah, absolutely. Which allows him some adaptable traits like you know being very still and blending into things. I hope he loves peanut butter. Yeah, because I don't know if you've seen all these stories. There are a lot of people that tend to leave like gifts and things for Bigfoot, mm-hmm. and one of the big ones is peanut butter. And I've I've seen so many stories where people talk about like leaving a big jar of like whatever like Jif creamy peanut butter out there, mm-hmm. and there's like two big you know like the way a a child would like stick their fingers into it. It's yeah. like that, but like massive, you know, like fingers right. the size of bratwurst. Yeah. You know, and that's taken out of it and, you know, the peanut butter's there and then they come back and there's like, you know, whatever it is that the Bigfoot left for them. Yeah. So I hope that, I hope the Bigfoot is a kindly uh, interdimensional hippie acting as a guru for weirdos like my buddy Riley out in the woods. (laughs) All right. Because, and, and able to release stink as a defense mechanism. And I think that if you believe that it has the capability of producing stink, as you say, like a skunk, that it most likely wouldn't be an ape. Because I I don't know for sure, but I don't think that, you know, chimpanzees and gorillas and orangutans, which we, and to us, which we believe are probably the closest relations, if it's a flesh and blood creature, don't have the ability to do that. I think being just some undiscovered species is probably most likely mm-hmm. just something that's pretty close to human or at least humanoid. Mm-hmm. I mean, just being humanoid doesn't mean that it has to be like really closely related to us genetically. Right, right. Because there are creatures with, you know, with like a defensive smell. Mm-hmm. Or, or a smell that's on purpose, like even um, or an offensive smell. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, what are they called? Ferrets. Uh huh. Ferrets have like scent glands that I mean they they reek. So if you ever if you have a ferret as a pet, odds are that scent gland's been removed. Or actually, skunks apparently make very good pets, but you have yeah. to have the, the scent gland removed because if they get scared, <laughs> or yeah. for whatever reason, I really don't know what would make a skunk do it. I would assume because they're scared and it's a defensive thing, but I wonder if, like, you slammed a door too hard or walked in too fast and scared it, if it would just spray. That would be awful. Yeah. No, I've heard that they make good pets, too. One of my favorites is the, I think it's the Southern Striped Skunk. 
or maybe mm. the spotted skunk, before it sprays, it'll do a handstand and spread its legs. Its back yes. Legs. Yes, I've seen that too. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's also, it makes it very clear what's about to happen to you. Right. Yeah, it's nice. It's like, hey, dude, th- this is my get the fuck away from your post. <laughs> yeah, I accidentally chased the skunk down out here one time. I was looking for Pepper, the little fat black dachshund that we've got. Like, she's she's so dark, it's really hard to see her at night. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if she gets far enough away from, like, the houses that you can't, there's just no light getting to her. And you thought you were chasing her? Yeah, I thought I was chasing her, because whatever it was was running kind of slow. It was low, uh-huh. and I run across this little cove. There's this little, like, man-made cove for this, this small lake here that kind of extends back here behind the houses. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of the lake, I could just see this little shadow moving. So I ran across and went over there, and I'm starting to catch up. And all of a sudden, it stops, and it kind of turns, uh-huh. like, just just to like halfway like the way you might like turn and kind of look at your kid in the back seat like are you sure you want to go down this route right but it was very much this look of like are you sure what you're trying to chase and i could see that it had this stripe down its face and it wasn't like you know pepper's face is kind of white and gray mm. and i was like oh shit this is <laughs> yeah. I, was, I just like i put put my hands up i was like oh sorry buddy i you are not what i'm after and i just backed away while like looking at it yeah, and then I turned and just ran off the other direction because <laughs> it. But I'm happy that it gave me a warning. I'm happy that right. it like turned and looked like. You sure you want to find out? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So go on about your business, Pepe. Yeah. Yeah. My thought is that it is just an ape, just something between us and you know chimpanzees, and. Mm. You know, we talk about, obviously, we don't think that, you know, a chimpanzee could mate with a human. And I think Stalin's experiments kind of prove that out. But maybe something a little different from a chimpanzee, maybe a little bit more evolved, if you will, may have been closer to Denisovians and Neanderthals and some of the other early humans may have actually been able to interbreed. This is the result. So I'm thinking North American wood ape, but I'm I'm not 100% on it. And I don't think anybody should be 100% on it until we have one that, you know, we actually know for a fact this is where the DNA came from. This is the exact results. I don't think anybody can deny anything because we just don't know. Now, I think that the odds of it being a North American wood ape are a lot higher than it being an alien hippie, but <laughs> I would never I would never rule anything out until it can be scientifically ruled out, you know, yeah. whether whether it's a, an ape or an alien or, or whatever, you can't rule anything out. So I'm and I don't believe that the people that say they saw these orange orbs or they saw it cloaking, I don't think that those people are lying. I think some of them could be mistaken, but you know, I mean, if I'm going to put credence in all these reports of an ape-like creature, then I have to have an open mind as we don't know. 
it could be. It could be. And I yeah. think that it could be is a powerful statement about anything that is not completely proven. It could be. I guess that's where we'll leave it. We're wrapping up season two here, and it was a lot of fun. And we've got some fun stuff coming up for you. We are going to cover the true story of Chucky, where Chucky came from, from Child's Play. I want to cover Anatoly Koskov, who basically robbed graves and made dolls out of the children he pulled out of the graves. Our season three opener is going to be amazing. I have finished writing this episode. This is the complete true story of the St. Louis Roland Doe exorcism. This is the priest's diary. These are the notes that the priests that did the exorcism took, and we're going to read it to you in its entirety. So you do not want to miss that. You have anything you want to cover on season three? I'd like to get more into kind of like time slips, UFOs, abductions, men in black. We, we focused a lot on sort of the ghost and paranormal side this time, as well as some things that are not paranormal or conspiratorial, mm. you know, like our ninja episode. Yeah. I just think there's a lot of fun to be had with some of the ridiculous stories. Mm-hmm. And some of the really believable ones are just terrifying. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I'm excited for. Maybe we could do an episode and just call it like bunk alien abductions or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, all right. So you guys don't want to miss that. You want to tell them what they need to know? Sure. Please share this all over the interwebs, like I said at the top of this episode, with friends, enemies, you know, if you like us, if you hate us. I mean, that obviously determines where it's going to go. Right. But hopefully it'll find a foothold somewhere. Send us your paranormal stories or suggestions, feedback, whatever. If you have a story that you want us to talk about with your experiences, send those as well to crypticpodcast at gmail.com. You can find our TikToks at cryptique underscore podcast. And don't forget to check out the Parabox link in the show notes. Doing that helps us out a lot, and they have a lot of really cool stuff that you guys should check out and would probably appreciate if you're into this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And we just started a YouTube channel, Cryptique Podcast, and we've got lots of new stuff coming out there, including the bumper music beats that we use in these episodes, which are created entirely by Jay. I have nothing to do with them except for listening to them when he sends them over to me. Right. So definitely check out the uh, YouTube and the TikTok. We're going to be putting up some kind of short stories that we really, you know, can't spend an hour on in the podcast, like the green man, who is a, it's a pretty cool little story. It's just a little four minute video for you to watch and, and take in. And there's, there's three ways that you can really help us. One is by rating the show. If you like it, uh, two is by leaving comments and then obviously sharing and writing a review. So all that is free stuff that you can do to help us. So if you enjoy the show, please do that for us. It really only takes a minute, but it's a huge help to us. So thanks in advance. 
And we will be back with you in a couple weeks with season three. Good evening, Crypt Keepers.